Los Escura del Tambo. Welcome to We Got We, Not BP by Another Gulf is Possible. My name is Artist Romero, broadcasting live from the Cosmic Poetry Sanctuary in Van Cleef, Mississippi, and I chase it. I want it. If nothing more than just to flaunt it, my savior. It even has God's name on it. I sell everything to get it, for the opportunity to flip it. And if nobody's looking, I'm not above stealing it. It's the one thing that I can say is always on my mind. Invest my energy, risk my health, become a slave to time. And if BP got more money than God, then who do I pray to? I mean, even if it's on your throat, you don't bite the hand that feeds you. And who's to blame when everybody is wrong? So just in case this message don't reach you in a song, I put it in the hard drive of the radio station back home. And maybe one day you'll find it when you go through the archives of my poems. And you'll be like, that artist Romero Cat was way ahead of his time. And he wasn't just talking, he was making sense with his rhymes. And 10 years from now, when the coast is completely different, you should be able to ride over the singing river and still hear him spitting, being honest with his rhymes, locking you in time speaking past your ears directly into your mind you see each one of us bears a part of the blame for the way the world is we got to be better than this i mean it is what it is we all want to be the best the first the center of time and space we call it the human race but it's not that kind of race and if it is and we are masters of the earth then who are we competing with in the universe to be first think about it and God said, let us make man in our image. Us is plural. The room had more than one person in it. And who was he talking to? And is he God, period? Or is it just God to me and you? You see, existence is a chain, each link just as important as the next. And as earthlings, we can't stand by and watch the disconnect. I know folks who love money more than they love people and would sell your soul at a wholesale price. They do bad things to you, not even think twice. And poison water leads to dead babies, bottom line. And it's my duty as a daddy first to protect me and mine. So I gotta resist the fast money, as hard as it might be, and change the way I live in order to save my babies. You see, in a capitalist society, we throw money at a problem and hope it goes away. So how much does your soul cost? Document the damage it will negotiate. What if I document my way of life and I call it priceless? And since Mississippi has the death penalty, what if I push to have you lifeless? You can't turn back the clock. You can't turn back the oil. It's too late to stop this much once it reaches the shores. You see, it's more than Biloxi shrimp and crabs and Pascagoula. Mother Nature is hurt. Worst natural disaster, worst man-made disaster, preparing for the worst has become a way of life in Mississippi. Thank you. Just wanted to give thanks to everyone for being on the call with us today. And for all of you who are listening, wanna give thanks to both 
you know, all of our ancestors and your ancestors that made it possible for us to be here today. We also want to acknowledge the waters that connect us. My name is Monique Verdan. I'm here at the base of the Mississippi River Delta in Bulbuncha, uh, better known as New Orleans. And we know that the 41% of the United States drains right past here out into the Gulf of Mexico, but we are all connected by waters everywhere and the lands that feed us and, and provide for us in so many ways. So just wanted to take a couple of seconds to um, have moments of silence together and breathe together. We have an incredible uh, show lined up. I'm, I'm so excited to, to learn more and hear more from everyone who's with us today. And wanted to also just share a little bit about what Another Gulf has been up to and what we're dreaming about. There's a Cisterns Project, S-I-S-T-E-R-N, and we are piloting a series of three different types of, of adaptations for water collection, one rural, one suburban, and one for, for someone who is in a more renter space, uh, temporary space. And then also we've been dreaming about um, how to remain and reclaim in places that are becoming more water than land. So there's a float lab that has been built and we're starting to dream about that a little bit more and wondering how we can find solutions for, for true sovereignty, which we know is tied to food security and access to the commons and, um, and the resources of nature and living in collaboration with those resources. And so, yeah, without further ado, let's get started. Thank you, Jorge, Artis, and Monique for your beautiful offerings and setting the intention for this necessary conversation on what land, water, and food sovereignty is from the Gulf South to the Global South. On behalf of Another Gulf is Possible, I welcome each of you. We are also very thankful for the land stewards, the water warriors, the food sovereignty stewards, and cultural workers who are joining us today as panelists from Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, and Puerto Rico to be part of this conversation. Uh, at this time, we want to welcome Mama Yawa, who's in the process of joining us, and Elsie, who's already with us, and Jorge, from whom you heard beautiful, beautiful music already. Big ups to you all. Uh, and grateful for joining us today. Um, as those of us that hail from historically indigenous, black, brown, and Bahujan communities of the global and deep south, we are aware of the adverse impacts our geographical places and peoples have been impacted by. Our hope for all of us is that we harness this particular moment to inform each of us of our generational mission, because that's the system change stewardship that is in alignment with our ancestors' charge for us, and because that is what the children of today and those yet to be born deserve. And in this conversation, I'm very grateful to be joined by Joisha and Cherie to collectively facilitate this episode. Joisha? Thanks. Thank you, Noelle. Um, so today's episode of We Got We is about land, water, and food sovereignty. 
So we want to acknowledge the fisher folks, shrimpers, and oystermen that we had hoped to have represented on today's call, particularly to make the connection from the BP oil disaster to today's COVID-19 pandemic. Um, however, when we created the narrative arc for these episodes, we did not realize that shrimp season was starting and actually today is the first day of uh, launching shrimp se uh, shrimping season in Southeast Louisiana. Um, but you know, we wanna recognize and acknowledge that in the Gulf South, our cultural and economic livelihoods are so intimately tied to the water in every way from our food systems to basic daily survival to the sea level rise we face to constant flooding um, that actually just this last weekend, New Orleans flooded. So as a collaborative, a lot of our work centers water protection, defense, and awareness. And so we do hope to have those folks whose livelihoods depend on the water um, on a future episode. But um, right now, Cherie, you are well acquainted with flooding in Louisiana, aren't you? Yeah, I, unfortunately, I wish I could say I wasn't, but we flooded twice, once in 2016 and again in 2017 and still are having to deal with the complications of that. I always like to say some people in these situations bounce and some people just fall, unfortunately. And we were, uh, some that are still trying to deal with that. But that was one of the reasons that we started the Indian Bayou Food Forest out here, which was the 11 acres that we saved from uh, the Bayou Bridge Pipeline that was supposed to go straight through the property. And, and uh, we're growing food. And that's why I had a lot of interest in coming on this and listening to what was being said, because food sovereignty is such an important issue in Southwest and Southeast Louisiana, where I live, um, because uh, we have so many food deserts. And, you know, it comes back to that old saying that says, if you can feed yourself, you can free yourself. And uh, that's what we're trying to do is, is uh, on that 11 acres is grow, and grow enough to take care of the people who, who, um, who need it the most. That takes us up to Jorge. All right. So, you know, sometimes uh, when you meet someone and you just know that they're part of your chosen family. So for me, Jorge, it's been like that since we first met. Uh, both of us were doing arts and activism uh, workshops at the Facing Race Conference in Atlanta right after the 2016 presidential election. Um, so very grateful to have our dear friend, comrade and brother Jorge Diaz join us today, especially as he is sharing a very uniquely a similar quarantined away from home experience as I am during this pandemic. Jorge is co-founder of Ajitarte and Papa Machete. He's a puppeteer, educator, and bicultural organizer committed to working class struggles against oppressive systems at the front lines of climate crisis and political catastrophe. He's an editor of the book, When We Fight, We Win, shedding light on the stories, philosophies, tactics, and art of today's most pressing movements including the environmental movement, immigrant rights, prison justice, and LGBTQ movements. Jorge, welcome to our podcast, and thank you for sharing uh, your stories and your music with us. So let's get down to it. How do you define land, food, and water sovereignty, especially given Borican's context as a colony of the U.S., resulting in, for example, the vast majority of food that's sold on the abundantly fertile islands are actually imported. Yeah, I mean, we have a very particular situation in Puerto Rico, highlighted by um, the dependence of the U.S., which has been obviously, you know, fabricated that way from the time that the U.S. invaded Puerto Rico and it started to control 
agriculture and decide how, how we could trade with the rest of the world. So it, it's a long history. I think if we fast track to today, we have Puerto Rico has been known as the haven for genetically manipulated food. Um, so we have Monsanto owning more land than they're supposed to and other biotech industries like Rice Tech and other companies that have basically taken over most of the great agricultural land in a long history, again, of the exploitation of Puerto Rico by the U.S. and multinational corporations that have for you know, over a century. Not unlike many places in the U.S., in the particularity that we're island and that we belong to, but we're not a part of the U.S., you know, another defined by our, you know, by our, our island, even though we're an archipelago, archipelago um, but really defined by, you know, by by the U.S. imperialist relationship. So I think there's a very particular relationship to land and sovereignty that, that Puerto Ricans face as being subjects of U.S. imperialism. Thank you. Thank you, Jorge. So where, where and how do you see cultural workers playing a role in our movements for sovereignty? Sure. I mean, I, mean, I think we have many roles to play. I mean, but I, I certainly think if we are to transform our reality, um, we're so immersed um, not only in the cultural forms of, you know, dominant culture, right, but also in the narratives of what can and what can't be done and, and how can we act as a people, you know, and um, it's, it's so into every aspect of our, of our daily lives, you know, and it's become in a lot of ways a common sense as we see the world. I think uh, radical cultural workers, cultural workers that are thinking with people, right, and not in that process of exchange of making art and presenting the art, um, you know, have a responsibility, but also you know, have a role to play in terms of trying to transform culture. And of course, that, that relates to the resources we have. When we started doing theater on the streets, people thought, oh, you just you know, bring your puppets, you know, you know, and I love puppets, you know, but we always have had an understanding that we want to be in all ways and forms in the cultural world. And that even includes, after the hurricane, understanding what mutual aid and solidarity looks like in this framework of cultural work and everything that we do produces culture. So we have to have cultural workers, and we all have to do cultural work. We all engage in doing cultural work. Think cultural workers like organizers just have a particular role in organizing that and making that happen. But we all are making culture and the work that we're doing every day. We just need to transform it if we're talking about radical transformations and the relationship that we have to sovereignty. Thank you so much, Jorge. You're welcome. Uh, thank you for being with us today. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Jorge. I met Elsie a few years back through many movement spaces coming together serendipitously in the Deep South and several folk kept connecting us. Since then, it's been a beautiful journey of sisterhood, comradeship, and collective cultural stewardship that I am very grateful for. Um, Elsie Parks is an Atlanta native uh, that advocates and activates the use of food as an organizing tool for healing and liberation. As a child of the South, farmer organizer, and agrarian cultural worker, she serves by cultivating intimate and responsive relationships with and for the land and our people that activate remembrance, honor sacred traditions, and practice radical resistance. She currently serves as the regional field director of uh, Southeastern African American Farmers Organic Network, popularly known as SAFON, with a focus on crafting kinship in Georgia and Mississippi and represents the organization on the leadership team for the National Black Food and Justice Alliance, popularly known as NBFJA. I am always inspired by Alsi's practice of intentionality, love, and accountability, and I am so glad and grateful that she's with us here today. Alsi, welcome to this conversation again, and I have three questions for you. As a land steward, 
can you please share with us how your engagement has been as a southerner in the deep south uh, what do you learn from agrarian communities with regards to what is required as investment to support their dignity can you share some moments of joy and challenges that you experience in this line of work uh, thank you for that lovely introduction noel my sister um, so I guess starting with um, how I've been engaging. So I've had the honor of experiencing and falling in love with the diversity of cultures across the South through living and working and traveling between New Orleans, Atlanta, and Jackson and their adjacent rural communities. Um, over the last few years, growing community connections, learning the landscape of geographies and relationships, um, I've learned to see my role as a pollinator. Um, helping to weave a quilt of families, farms, and land-based institutions and the support systems that help them thrive. Um, over the past decade, but especially within the past three plus years through my work um, with Safon um, and that, that cultivating kinship, um, I've been able to, um, yeah, grow really beautiful and deep relationships with um, folks in the Mississippi. Um, in the deep south but primarily with black farmers um, that has allowed me to really deepen trust and understanding um, to gain clarity on the visions and needs of farmers um, and i'm very grateful for the time on the land together that we spend dreaming and laboring with our bodies alongside each other planning and thinking through ways to uh, resource and sustain ourselves and our communities I would say I'm also really excited about contributing to really beautiful work that my dear friend Noel has been helping to steward with the Mississippi Food Justice Collaborative that births uh, Mississippi Food Systems Fellowship. Um, it's really allowed me to make some critical connections along the Mississippi Gulf Coast with really brilliant and beautiful human beings like artists <laughs> um, and his daughter Karina. Um, and yeah, I've just been, I feel really privilege to be able to like support and nurture um, food systems thinkers. Um, what I've learned from agrarian communities. Um, so when speaking on the agrarian, I am naming land-based lifeways um, related to the cultivation of land and an intimate and regenerative relationship with the land. So speaking on the Black experience, you know, our relationship to ancestral land in this country has been complicated by the forced enslavement of African people brought here to work the land. Um, and just like the prescribed decimation of our cultural identity and access to quality of life through land stewardship that has had generational impacts on Black families struggling to find our way through. Um, I believe that the cultural shift in narratives and actions that is happening in these times in our people's collective spiritual body is working to repair itself. Um, I believe that race and place matters and that Black farmers in the South have unique legacies and heritages that must be acknowledged, honored, and engaged to restore the dignity of this work. Um, I've also spent some time thinking about like how our collective cultural memory is tied to geography, um, geography of the South, um, and also our like relationship to legacy. 
I believe that the cultural foundations of both the U.S. and Global South is the land and what it provides us is the source of our connection and power. Um, taking care of the land has been consistent with our collective ancestral identity. Um, and I've learned that in extending our land legacies into the future, it really depends on our ability to remember and to transform that memory into practice um, as ritual. Um, just cultivating a cultural renewal and celebration of those practices by, by living in the remembrance. And so, yeah, just through the re-engagement of agrarianism, I believe that we're actively attempting to embody some of our earliest memories on this land base and others. Um, and when we engage our memories and those gifted to us through our ancestral identity, we are inherently operating as agrarians and we are in the practice of remembering. Um, I'll try to keep this brief too, um, but I would say that um, some of the joy that I've been able to experience in this work is to be affirmed in my own desires and to be a witness to others being called to the land as a way to heal ourselves um, and to restore a generative relationship to our natural resources and to reclaim a cultural way of life for ourselves that is substantive, harmonious, and, and purposeful. That feels like joy. Um, challenges. I would say the love, labor, and investments of time it requires to build relationships rooted in care um, with the purpose <laughs> to develop trust, especially in a place like the South um, that holds a particular value system, you know, where authenticity <laughs> is the currency and that social and cultural capital are things to be protected. Um, the quality and nature of our relationships really matter um, and extending genuine care and everything that we create and curate to build community and institutions that serve us. Um, yeah, I know this to be worthwhile because this is what we learn from the ways of our ancestors and we're building upon that work of our ancestors. Thank you, Elsie. Mm -hmm. Hi, that was beautiful. Thank you. Now it's my honor to introduce um, a very special person. Mama Yawa is a vegan, vegetarian chef, mother of nine with 26 grandchildren and one great granddaughter. She's a personal, was the personal chef for NDRE in 2019 and is the current executive director, director of Mahala Farms located in two states. Tell us the story of how you became a chef farmer in Cuba, Alabama with Mahala Farms. And welcome. <laughs> Okay, I'm working with this technology, everybody. <laughs> uh, okay, okay, okay. Boy, this is this was trying from down here in this rural area, trying to get this internet. So I came to the little town, then I couldn't connect. But um, just so happened, one of the young ladies working with me allowed me to. She was like, "Wait, I can get you on." So thank you all for um, feeling that I was worthy of being a part. Of, of your program and I really appreciate love all of that. Um, farming, how I got into farming. Uh, what was your question again? You gotta tell me again cause the sun to beat my brain today. Sure. 
I asked if you tell us the story of how you became a chef farmer in Cuba, Alabama. All right. Here we go. Um, I became a chef farmer from Cuba, Alabama. Um, I raised, um, I guess, uh, six of my children off the grid from the 80s, from the early 80s to the late 80s. And during that time, um, I began to make my own soy milk, tofu, and so forth and so on like that, and practicing my Rastafarian vegan way of life. So uh, when I left in 1989 and moved back to Knoxville, I continued to cook the foods that I was cooking down on the farm. Uh, a lot of it I grew, and um, people would stop by the house and say, hey, this is good, I like that. Well, why don't you cook for so-and-so, so-and-so, you know? So some nonprofit um, organizations began to ask me to cook for them, and then from that, it just spiraled in later on in the late 90s. I was doing backstage catering for all kind of artists like B.B. King, Bonnie Raitt, um, who else I can't remember, a lot of people, uh, the Never Brothers, I, it's so many people, I can't name all of those people, uh, so I did that for the early 90s into the late 90s, I was a backstage caterer for um, uh, AC Entertainment in Knoxville, then I had this call, uh-oh, I think we might have, we might have lost Mama Yawa, all right, we'll see if we can get her back. But Sheree, do you want to keep the call? Or maybe she's back. Do you want to move on and then? Let's see if she can come back. But yeah, let's move into the conversation and, and hopefully she can jump back in. Uh, so this is for everyone. The legacies and the access of land, water, and food and resources, such as time, people, money, and skill, uh, building support set the tone to how food system nurturers such as you all engage in food sovereignty and the deep south and global south have been places and people that have been historically oppressed and adversely impacted due to divestment, exploitation, extractive practices and injustices. What are some of those beautiful and most challenging experiences with regard to engaging on food sovereignty in either Cuba, Puerto Rico or the deep south? And anyone can answer that question. Any of our panelists? Uh, okay, I'll go. <laughs> um, I think what's what's been the most beautiful and challenging is like the tension that we hold between um, offering ourselves. Um, it's the it's the time that it takes to shift culture at the most intimate level um, and having a pace in which we perform that work in a sustainable way that honors our wholeness and that allows that change to emerge and resonate with others and expand naturally feels um, not at odds but like at tension with the degradation of our environment so I would say what's most beautiful is people's ability to strive and dig deep and continue to do this really beautiful work of 
liberating the land in our communities um, while also trying to resist exhaustion. Um, and yeah, because I, I don't know, to, to survive and to play our role, um, yeah, we have to, we have to be rested. <laughs> um, yeah, we have to be rested, so how I answer. <laughs> this is Artis uh, from the Cosmic Poetry Sanctuary in Van Cleve, Mississippi. I think that the, the, one of the hardest things to do is trying to, some kind of way, the, um, like Alcy said, Alcy, I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna steal this quote, Alcy. Alcy said, to restore the dignity of this work. A lot of, I didn't, I didn't learn how to grow things, farming. I didn't learn a passion for food and anything for food being power from my parents. I mean, it's, it's not, they didn't mean to not give me that information, but it missed me. So I'm trying to think of things that I did with my grandma and my grandpa, you know, saying with well, my mama and papa at McGee, Mississippi, um, to make sure that, and, and, and so I'm having to dig a little bit, but one of the most beautiful things about it, it's like being, it's like having this recurring deja vu over and over again. And when I'm out with my hands in the land and I'm doing my grandpa's work, you know, I feel like it's, I feel like, I feel like I'm connected to, I feel like I'm connected to something bigger than myself, a, a, a future that's going to go way past me. I have a two year old and she gets out the grand and they're with me and she, this is going to be way past me. Um, something that was, come way before me because like I said, my Momo and Papa and the folks in Hazelhurst and McGee, they taught me this, they taught me how to do this work. Um, they didn't teach me, they planted the seed and now it's it's doing what seeds do. So uh, it's, it's fantastic work, I love it and it's empowering. Thank you. Well, I think for me, for us in Ajitarte and for me, like being in a project set in an urban area, um, and being a party that supports other organizations to support the movement as a movement organization. I think the most, um, the greatest thing has been really to grow, be able to, to have a space and very in, in a very limited space in the middle of the city to create an educational project for, for the youth of the public school down the street to be able to come and plant food and understand the importance and talk about colonialism, you know, and, and being anti-colonial and how the relationship to food makes sense. So I think that wonderful, beautiful project that we've been able to do with very little resources and um, not tapping even, you know, to the resources of the education system, which is what everybody does. They want to get those funds. All the nonprofits want to get that funds from education. So the opposite, like contributing to community in a school that's threatened to be closed down, contributing with a program that's actually helped them survive and prove that they have this community engagement. And at the same time, seeing these young girls, because uh, they're 99% girls, is a ballet school in the community, the only school accessible to working class, you know, people that want to dance, girls and boys that want to dance. Um, and, and they come and they grow food and just to see the joy, they've never been able to grow anything, to have that opportunity in the middle of the city in a gentrified neighborhood that we're in. It's just a wonderful, beautiful experience. So I, I just have to share that. And, uh, and as a, as a, for me, it's being able to find the resources as limited as they are to do it. So, I, you know, I, it's also finding and understanding your role. Sometimes you you know, even in the frontline work, you know, your capacity or your abilities are best used in certain ways. And so being able to, me as an individual, being able to resource this work or get the resources from folks and be out here, even though I've been stuck for two and two and a half months in Boston, you know, in a fundraising trip, I haven't gone home, but really understand that gives me great joy and understand that we work in a collective way and that we can do this work and that we can envision uh, a different, um, like Artis said, we can envision a different future and we can build towards it. And, and that's just a wonderful, for me, it's a wonderful 
experience and I'm grateful to be part of it. Thank you. Thank you, Jorge. Um, Mama Yawa, are you back? Because we could. Yes, I'm, I'm here. Um, I'm, I'm here. I hope you can hear me. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. So I'll make it brief and quick for my phone cut off again. <laughs> well, anyway, as I was saying, um, this was just through catering for friends and people. And um, I decided to come back to the land in 2004 and began to um, honor the land and my ancestors uh, in growing foods. So that's how I got started. Um, and the land accepted me for who I was with no quirks or qualms and began to teach me what I thought that I already knew. And I learned um, in many ways, I learned in many ways to be obedient to the soil. Um, I know uh, the soil is one of the most greatest things that I know as a person that will be forgiven of your um, disrespect of it and still give you food. Uh, that's one of the things that um, has happened to us uh, in this in this time zone that we're traveling in uh, right now and we call it in the 20th century is that um, the humans became so disrespectful to the land, to the air, to the creatures and everything that we must become a, uh, a more humble person. So coming back um, to Cuba humbled me in a very, very beautiful way that um, food is life and life is food. And one of the things that uh, my favorite chef would always say, is not the um, food in your life, but the life in your food. And so um, <clears throat> as I began to change my way of life and, and thinking, um, fodgering through the, you know, going through the land and eating certain grasses and say, oops, you know, I ain't dead, so that's good to eat. That has been one of the most rewarding things that I could do and having young people to come and want to be on the land with me and the difference between train between has been a very rewarding thing. I do young people and they work until they can't work anymore and enjoy it. So from Cuba to out on the road, um, I was born in Cuba, Alabama, we moved to Tennessee in the, in the 60s and my life changed. So um, it's just been such a life changing experience being back here on the an ancestral land. So the Choctaw Nation, my family, and I'm humble and grateful uh, to be there, to be a part of not necessarily growing food, but participating in putting the seed and watching the earth give back to me in a tremendous way. Thank you so much, Mama Yawa, for joining us today. So at another Gulf, we've been dreaming about the Cisterns Project that Monique referenced earlier as a grassroots solution to water issues in times of crisis. We see these crises in places like Flint, where the municipal water infrastructure has failed 
people entirely, to the BP oil disaster where wild open waters were poisoned, to ongoing contamination of our waterways in the Mississippi River and other places from industrial agriculture that's resulted in huge dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico, to persisting lack of water access uh, during climate disasters for those who are most vulnerable. So this is again a question for everybody. Um, how do you see us being able to get back into right relationship? I think there's been a lot of you know, conversation around land, but also around water. So how do we ensure clean, healthy, safe waters? And we have movement slogans these days, like water is a human right, water is life. As those become more and more common, what do you think water sovereignty means? That's a big, loaded, beautiful question. <laughs> Do you have a sh reflection, Mama Yella? Yeah, I was I was thinking um, as we we have this little water spot on the land that um, it's a little creek, um, and it was such a pure blessing to go and get down on the ground and actually put a glass jug down there and catch a jug of water and then drink it and notice the um, change that my structure went through as I drank this water coming straight from the earth and uh, watched the sand and the rocks and stuff uh, cleaning it. And that's why I said, it's a, wow, how, it's a big question. How, how can we do that? With you? Because we have the urban areas that may not have those, um, special places to go to do those things but um in the in the wilderness of the the country where i am down there the universe and the land always provide little secret waterways uh where you can get your pure water we might not um be able to access them fully but i think that it would be a great one of those great things to to purposely seek out and find springs and to find clean ponds and the, for those that live in the tropical areas, the the water palms and all those things still do exist. Is how do we find those things uh, with this sovereignty that um, is a right? It's our right to have clean well water is our right long before this system exists where we are now we had well water everybody in this poor county of sumter county had their own water which was a well and if you didn't have a well you had a creek and then this system came in place and people threw soil in their wells or tore them down or just abandoned their creeks and things so hmm, I, ooh, i'm gonna have to think about that one that that's really deep that's a deep question that's just what i'm saying that's a deep question thank you mama yawa you're welcome and anyone else want to jump in on this question before we keep it going i had someone ask, can you repeat the question one more time please um, I'm not going to repeat the whole question in the interest of time, but it's basically what is your definition of water sovereignty? 
water sovereignty, when you can trust your water, you know, us as, <clears throat> um, I guess humans, because we do it all over the place. We don't trust the water that comes out of our faucet. We don't trust the water that comes out of our, uh, we just don't trust our water. And to me, that's backwards. Um, water sovereignty is whenever you can actually trust your water and you don't have to, you don't trust the water that comes out of the bottle that come more than you trust the water that comes out of your, your ground or your house or your faucet in your house or the water in your creek. Um, we've been conditioned to not trust the environment and that we got to get away from that. We, we got to do better. Yeah. One of our biggest resources is water in Puerto Rico. We have huge aquifers, aquifers, you know, uh, underground and, um, and people know that. I mean, the companies know that Coca-Cola, all the water they use, they don't pay a cent in Puerto Rico to make, you know, to be, to be huge, one of the biggest corporations in the Caribbean, you know, controlling, you know, many of the distribution, not just Coca-Cola, many of the foods that get distributed all around Puerto Rico and in the Caribbean. So there's a, and, and the U.S. Navy for years, you know, just wasted and used our water and pharmaceutical corporations do the same. So we have a long history of abuse of water um, by these huge corporations and it's unspoken to and uh, it's constant and, and they know, they know what a great resource it is in Puerto Rico. And the funny thing is the access is so hard and the price of water in Puerto Rico, a privatized system, is, 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 is ridiculous, the amount of water, the money that we pay for water. And we love to do stuff like water collection, but even that's inaccessible for most of us in urban areas and most working class folks. So it's a very huge challenge in Puerto Rico right now, the issue of water. And it became very clear after the hurricane. And then also this idea of trust, as uh, artists very, very well mentioned, like, you know, people don't trust the water because the water is actually not good coming out of the faucet, but then we're using bottled water. Puerto Rico can't even hold the amount of trash that we have. We're an island and we're generating. People sent thousands and thousands of bottles of water to Puerto Rico after the hurricane instead of figuring out what other ways in an island that's full of water can we deal with this water crisis and not just send all these water bottles and little water purifiers, you know, for survival that people don't even know how to use, you know. So water and all its consequences is a huge issue. So sovereignty has to relate to the power for us to have access to it. And also to live more like folks have mentioned, more in balance with it and not with this complete model of extraction. And then us buying into it with this bottled water stuff that is just destroying Puerto Rico. And it's the, it's the culture. Everybody buys little bottles of water. And when, you know, a year, 25, 30 years ago, that wasn't even a thing. There was no bottled water. It didn't exist. So it's interesting how, how also very quickly this market for bottled water just took over this lack of trust and this reality as well to sell something that's just as bad half the time anyway. So it's interesting, but it's, it's, it's been horrible. And it's actually you know, the opposite of sovereignty. So, you know, to talk about sovereignty, I think we have to understand the problem, right? Or problematize, problematizar uh, the issue of water too. And then and in our case, it's very clear. And, um, and it's not spoken to enough. So I'm glad you bring it up because it's definitely not spoken to enough. So thank you. And I think also, uh, thank you, Jorge. Uh, um, and I think also that um, you mentioned law and policy. Well, most average people in the local communities, most average farmers, most average people don't really, aren't really up on their laws and policy. And we have this system, once again, confused us into thinking that the laws, right and wrong, are the same as legal and illegal. And that's not right. And we need to, you know, right now I have, I have three teenagers on my stage at the Cosmic Poetry Sanctuary outside painting, and they're on, on, on this Zoom call. And we need to teach, we need to push 
whoever needs to be pushed this education system or something to teach to plant some sort of a foundation for our children when it comes to law and policy because the laws and policies are holding our people back not just for this but for everything in in food water business um import and export um everything so the law and po the law and policy right and wrong legal and illegal are not the same thing and we need to have that conversation with our people uh, anyone else want to touch that question um that's that's a very good question about how to involve the young people um into understanding or understanding about the laws and principles of what is rightfully ours to have clean water to be responsible for ourselves and to govern ourselves um since the 60s it's been very relevant conversations about how to govern ourselves with three things that are most important and that's food clothing and shelter and so far we have touched on a lot of it you know uh just a little bit um but those things that we haven't totally got into our power yet and and that's the most important things that most of the people work for is food clothing and shelter so to me if we had even the little spot of land and you could invite the young people down to have some sense of um sovereignty or stewardship towards to respect the land a little bit more or to respect the water like something simple as you know while you're brushing your teeth don't let the water run you know shut it off it's important is 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 one of the things that gives us life so i don't know if i'm off track with the question but i feel that how we teach and we encourage and embrace the young people uh how important land and water and shelter is and food they have to see that thing with us because they have these um uh, videos and cell phones and all this stuff distracts them with different you know nonsense um keeping their minds away from how they're gonna have liberty and 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 be able to live freely with themselves after elders like myself have you know moved to a whole nother level of life so uh if we can embrace that through some summer even if it's a summer program or weekend where they can spend some time to actually see how food is grown or actually see water coming from the earth and not from a pipe because even though the municipalities is pumping water through pipes it still has to come from the vein of the earth so that's what i'm saying how we can we can uh, hold our children close to whatever the little bit of information that's pure that we can pass on this next question what can we learn about what can we learn about medicine about the medicine of food during COVID-19. I'm gonna tell you what, I, I've been, I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like, this question came up. I, we do, um, <clears throat> we've been doing some, we've been doing some foraging tours at the Cosmic Poetry Sanctuary. We've been learning about the benefits of elder, um, elderberry, we've been learning about the benefits of privet, sage, um, those kinds of things that help people's respiratory, uh, 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 your respiratory systems. We've been 
eating Florida Bettany straight out of the woods. Um, we've been doing those things. So this disconnecting from this, from having to go to work every day and, and, you know, only driving past the, our, driving past where I want to be, which is outside in the woods. You know, I don't have a chance when we're working all the time. We miss it. So this is, I feel like after this, I know at least for me and my family, we're going to be, we're going to be a little bit more confident about being able to survive during times of crisis by living off the land. Um, we've learned some things. Um, and it's because we had time to learn some things. And when we go back to, whenever I go back to work, it's not going to be this, my same approach to work because now, you know, I'm, I'm, at, I'm, I'm at work. I'll be at work, but I'll, my, my heart will be someplace else. I'm going to get back to that land and I'm going to finish that work because that information is vital. We have things like hurricanes and tornadoes and um, even things like uh, people have mental health crises, you know, and there are things that grow on the land naturally that the native, that native people used for thousands of years until it got to us, you know? So I know that's one, one way I feel more empowered and, and searching out food as medicine, not just to eat, but food as medicine during this crisis. That's beautiful. One of the things that the young people experienced being down here in Cuba, Alabama with me was the dewberry, which was um, when we was getting a little bit uh, fatigued, we all would eat a handful of berries and then all of a sudden the energy would kick in and we could move along a little farther and the youngest person that was with us was five years old and she enjoyed picking the berries and the next younger person was from the city she was 10 years old and so one of the things they would do in the mornings they would go pick berries and then they would share it with the the older people um the rest of us not older people but the rest of us uh on the land and eating those really dark berries gave us especially me really vital energy all the way to the brain to the thought of it we haven't um we did, it, it was so kind and wonderful being in the bush that nobody knew what day it was. Uh, all we knew was night and day until somebody said, what day is this? And someone would say, oh, I don't know. Let's then we'll find out it's a Friday, but we have been going along for four days working without, um, what do you call it, um, social media interaction and anything else interactive into our life until we finish on the farm and I think for the young people it's been a beautiful experience and um, eating those berries and we're also waiting now on the uh, peaches and um, the plums yeah they had some plums today we waiting on peaches plum and the huckleberries in the woods to eat those too as you were talking about forage and brother those are in the woods too so it's it's such a great, um, wonderful thing to do, uh, to eat off the land like that. And, and that inspired me to uh, hear you say that once you go back into that system of, of working, you st your heart is still going to be out in the woods, you know, doing teaching your children. And so that's a great thing, brother. Yeah. The, oh, I mean, that, uh, that was beautiful. Thank you, Mama Yawa. You know, the what I heard from artist and Mama Yawa is that, you know, the land has always provided everything that humans need to be, um, be well and to heal. 
And so just seeking out that knowledge, especially from our elders, um, and just intimately knowing where your food comes from, um, and cooking with love, imbuing that energy into the food that you you conjure up in your kitchens, I think has its own healing power as well. I feel I feel quite lucky as well. I'm um having a network of uh, healers and people who have like looked out after me and and have had access to a lot of natural medicine but i'm quite concerned about back home and about the lack of access so for most people uh, a lot of folks that i know do grow food and they do it but it's not enough and it's not enough for most people on the island to depend on food coming from the u.s and you know 90 percent of the food and it comes in u.s ships the most expensive ships in the world and we've seen over the last 10, 15 years how food just keeps going up and up in price and down and down in quality. So as, um, we are lucky that we have some networks, but even with those networks, even us growing food, it's not enough for us to survive in the city and it's not enough for even to provide and the cost of even producing food because of the water. Um, and you know, even, even with all the rain that we have, it's still, it's still, not, it's still not cost effective. So I'm quite concerned about food sovereignty and how that relates directly to the colonial system in Puerto Rico and how the U.S. really benefits from that and really in, the, in how it's getting worse and worse. And a lot of people have gone back to the land. I've tried it out and, and, and I know a lot of folks that have great, you know, great, you know, um, they're growing great food, um, but it's, it's just not enough for a lot of folks and for most of the folks that we work with and now doing mutual aid work for most of the folks in our area in Santurce and the city. Um, it's really, and this is the middle of the city and still for a lot of folks, there's no access to food and or really cutting food apartheid, you know, and the space where there's nothing. Um, or the access to supermarkets is terrible. So I feel quite blessed, but I also feel quite concerned and, and, and looking forward to figuring out more ways in which we can you know, address the food sovereignty issue in Puerto Rico and, of course, in the rest of the world. And that shares in the deep south and those shares in a lot of places, the same conditions that we do, being places of food apartheid and so on. So I know we share this relationship with a lot of places in the deep south and the global south. So we're also in solidarity and, and trying to figure out ways in which to shift that reality. Uh, thank you, Jorge. Thank y'all for listening. Thank you for this, for this fantastic conversation. My name is Artis Romero, and whether you wear it on your clothes or the way you style your hair, there's originality somewhere in there. Your creativity shines through even when you don't mean for it to. And the way you love somebody, that says everything there is to say about you. And who better to give a commentary on your place in the world than the creative spirit that flows directly through your words? The most natural thing in the world is fear, ignorance, and superstition. Because we are all a part of the same human condition. We're making room for growth in the midst of loving and living. You see, I am a spiritual being, and I accept all of this as just a part of my human experience. Thank y'all for having me. I'm gonna throw it back to Jaisha. Thank you. Thank you so much, artists, Jorge, Mamayawa, Alsi for joining us today for this third episode of our experimental podcast. We are not professional podcasters. We're trying this out and um, it's going pretty well so far. Thanks to our production team, Becca Hinojosa, Monique Redan, Sharon Hong, our co-host, 
Sharif Voitlin, co-hosting live producer Noel Didla, and our post producer and also live production support from Brian Fadas. Um, if you want to listen to this again or share it with others, this podcast will be officially released next Monday, but we are streaming it live on Facebook, so you can catch the Zoom live recording on our Facebook page immediately and share it. And please do mark your calendars. Our next live recording will be Monday, June 1st. 4 p.m. Central around public health impacts from BP to COVID-19. And so to close us out today, again, thank you to everybody, everyone who joined, everyone who's listening on Facebook and on Zoom. Um, and we invite you to stay with us for a tiny taste of DJ Cano Cangrejo, which is also Jorge Diaz, um, and get a little taste of the music medicine he's been providing on a weekly basis on Saturday nights through Sauco Virtual. Um, the 12th iteration will be this weekend. Brian and I have been regulars, encourage you to join. They've been really magical, beautiful. So please um, take a listen and thank you all for joining. Um, be well. Bye.